Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. This podcast brings together a group of autistic and non-autistic thinkers, academics and cinema lovers for discussions on films and TV programmes with a particular autistic interest. We look at the representation of autism, the ethics of performing autism, as well as where autistic expression may have been captured, sometimes inadvertently, by the movement of the camera and the use of sound and imagery. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemaautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, the team discussed the 2017 crime thriller Good Time, directed by the Safdie brothers and also offer reflections on the controversial 2021 musical drama Music, directed by Sia. In this recording, you will hear the voices of David Hartley, Alex Widowson, Janet Harbord, Georgia Kumari Bradburn, and John James Laidlow. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, my name is David Hartley, and I'm a writer and a researcher. I've just finished my PhD in creative writing at the University of Manchester, uh, where I looked at representations of autism in sci-fi and fantasy. And I'm joined today by uh, Georgia Bradburn, Alex Woodison, John James, and Janet Harbord. Um, so if you'd all like to introduce yourselves as well. Hi, I'm Alex Woodison. I'm a PhD student at Queen Mary on the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, podcast? No, the Autism Through Cinema Research Project. It's all the same. <laughs> okay, I'm Janet Harbord. Uh, I work at Queen Mary in the film department, and I'm currently part of the team for Autism Through Cinema um, Research Project that Alex is also working on. Hi, I'm Georgia Bradburn. I'm an undergraduate film student at Queen Mary University. Um, and I'm also an essay writer and a filmmaker. Um, hi, I'm John James Laidlow. Uh, I did an MA at Sussex in digital documentary, um, and I sometimes make video stuff. Excellent. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> it's lovely to have you all here. Um, okay, so... Uh, our episode today is a little bit unusual as we've um, decided to take a look at a kind of specific look at the ethics of uh, non-autistic actors playing autistic or autistic coded characters. Um, this has been inspired partly by the controversy that has arisen recently over the film uh, Music by the musician Sia. So we've taken a look at a couple of clips from music and we're going to discuss some of the reactions to that film. Um, but actually our main focus this week is a different film, um, the 2017 contemporary crime thriller, Good Time, uh, directed by Josh and Benny Safdie, who are also known as the Safdie brothers. Uh, Good Time stars Robert Pattinson as Connie Nickass, a bank robber who uses his brother Nick, who is described as having uh, learning difficulties and has some autistic tendencies 
um, as his uh, accomplice during his bank robbing crimes. Um, and after at the beginning of the film, after one bank robbery, go, bank robbery goes wrong, uh, Nick is arrested and ends up in hospital while Connie spends the rest of the night trying to raise enough money to post bail for Nick. And the whole situation rapidly sort of spirals out of control. Um, I've actually seen this film described as a crime caper, and it sort of is a crime caper, but it's not particularly funny. It's But it's a caper in a sense that lots of things kind of go wrong continually. Um, Nick is played by one of the directors of the film, uh, Benny Safdie, um, and so the main focus of our discussion today will be to consider really the ethics and the accuracy, I suppose, of a non-disabled, non-neurodivergent, as far as we know, uh, actor uh, playing such a role and, and whether that's uh, successful or not in this film. Um, but we've also taken a look at the trailer and a clip from the film Music, although it is worth giving a bit of a caveat here that I think none of us have watched it in its entirety, as far as I know. Oh, John James has put his hand up. Have you watched the whole thing, John James? Uh, yeah, I watched it uh, about a week ago, I think. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay, that's good. I don't think the rest of us have. Um, no. Okay, that's fine. Um, so... Well, we just want to, I just wanted to put that caveat in there just so that, you know, anything that Alex, myself, Georgia and Janet say about this film has that caveat that we haven't watched the whole thing. Um, but we were, I think our concern was less to watch the film and more, um, we were more interested, I think, in the impact and the reaction that this film has had recently from the autistic community and in turn, Sia's own reaction to that reaction as well. Um, so just, I just have a quick overview of the film. Music is a musical film written and directed by Sia to tie in with an album of the same name, I believe, and tells the story of a drug dealer called Zoo, uh, played by Kate Hudson, who has to take on the role of carer and guardian to her autistic half-sister, Music, uh, played by Maddie Ziegler. Uh, Ziegler is non-autistic, and there was a very strong uh, negative reaction from many autistic people to the casting of Ziegler, uh, her portrayal of the character, and the way in which the character was written by, by Sia. Um, it is also worth noting that, for some mysterious reason, Music was recently nominated for two Golden Globe Awards um, for uh, Best Motion picture musical or comedy and and also for best actress motion picture musical musical or comedy for for kate hudson although not for ziegler notably um it didn't win either of these awards and indeed there was actually renewed anger when the nominations were announced uh, uh but now that the film has been released the critical response has been pretty poor and it doesn't look like it's doing particularly well with its with its takings necessarily um although i think it's still out at the moment it's still available to, to watch us as we're recording in comparison good time was very very well received uh very highly critically regarded and indeed it actually competed for the palm door at Cannes in 2017 and it won the soundtrack award at Cannes for the for its soundtrack by the experimental electronica musician Wano tricks point never um who i think is a really interesting musician but maybe we'll talk about that anyway uh, but we're, we're mostly here to talk about the uh, the representation of autism and neurodivergence, of course. So it's time to throw this open to everybody. Um, what do we think? Where should we start? Should we start with good time or should we start with music, do you think? Anyone got any strong feelings either way? Well, we could start with like good time and then just draw music in when we start talking about like 
the parallels within the representation. That sounds good to me. So, okay, what, well, what do we think? What was our uh, reaction to uh, Benny Safdie's portrayal here of um, of Nick Nick Nickass uh, in Good Time? Um, I saw Good Time. I think over the summer, uh, I saw Uncut Gems last year, and I was just absolutely like blown away by it. I loved it so much. So I was really excited to see Good Time, um, and. I remember it just was such a draining experience. You know, ironically, it's really not always fun to watch because it is so like stressful to to go through. And one of the things I really like about the Safety Brothers is just the way that they create like such a potent sense of anxiety just with everything. It's because one of my favorite things with film is when, you know, a filmmaker can create that environment that makes you feel, you know, physically sick or, you know, um, so I really liked that about it. Um, and um, I thought uh, the kind of portrayal of Robert Pattinson as, uh, you know, uh, kind of on the lower rungs of society, but is constantly taking advantage of his own privilege as a, a white, able-bodied man to essentially get his own way or to um, protect his brother, but, you know, in turn protecting himself. I think one of the things I was thinking a lot when I was watching the film was do, how much does he actually, you know, care for his brother? Because you can tell that one of his main motivations is that he wants to get his brother. He wants to post his bail. He wants to get him out. Um, but, you know, at the beginning, he takes him out of his therapy because he doesn't think it's good for him. And he has a very specific idea of what he believes is good for his brother, um, which ultimately, you know, isn't good because he's manipulating him and exploiting him. And there's a really sad moment where uh, Nick is like, you know, you don't love me. Connie loves me. And so he's been essentially gaslit into thinking that Connie is the only person who will care for him and love him. And it's, it's really sad because I think that's a lot of, uh, reality that's a reality for a lot of people with quite abusive carers um so I think throughout the film I was I was thinking about that and how that was a really interesting uh way of showing that um on, with the representation thing I I only really started thinking that at the end of the film uh, because Benny always plays a character in the films like he's always cast um somewhere and um I mean, it's difficult because I, I think he was, he's very, his performance is very convincing. Um, and also, also it is quite a stressful film as well. And so you, you brings in, you know, the ethics of casting someone if, if the production is quite stressful. However, something that I saw being brought up when people were talking about music was that, you know, if your production is too stressful for uh, a, a neurodiverse person or someone with, um, learning uh, difficulties um, then you know is, is your production ethical in general if it's stressful for that person um, which is something to think about and I think in this you know I think it is quite a recent film and I think they could have gotten away with casting someone who did have a learning disability um, but I mean in, in comparison to something like music where it is quite an obtuse caricature of someone with a disability um it's you know it's 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 nothing I don't think that it's outstandingly 
uh, damaging. Um, but then again, I've been kind of grappling with this for a long time because I, I remember seeing the film and felt slightly uncomfortable and had to think about it for a bit. I think one thing that did annoy me was I was going through all these articles, interviews about it, and they never actually name what the condition he has is, um, which I do have an issue with because I think if you're going to portray a disability, you should at least show that you've done research and you've put care into it by, you know, naming it because otherwise you lump all um, neurological conditions and learning difficulties in one category. And that's actually quite, it's quite damaging because people have different needs and need different things. Because I remember when I was um, applying for my diagnosis for autism, I was put in the same kind of medical category as people with um, like schizophrenia and a lot of different things that are very different to what I have and it felt like there was a lack of care there was a lack of you know understanding what different people need and I think this also translates to representation because people see someone who is disabled and they think one thing rather than you know who they actually are um, so I thought I thought maybe because obviously they didn't need to name the disability in the film but I was a bit confused by the fact that they didn't seem to name it outside of the film I think I think one um attempt to name the disability was um developmental issues um yeah it's yeah very vague issue with but yeah um I mean that's what I've been thinking about since I watched the film Georgia while you were speaking I had a look at the um the budgets for the two films uh good time was two million and music was 16 million and the reason i did that is because i found an interview on npr um where the safety brothers were discussing why they didn't choose to hire a um a disabled actor and they essentially said they did a lot of casting and and uh, explored lots of options um and but essentially started to feel a bit like their sort of schedule for the filming was very intense and they didn't really want to put anyone through that who because they wouldn't be offered much agency in those scenes it was already locked in exactly what would they would have to do so i don't i mean this is a very similar defense that sia uses um in her um in her, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> flailings on the internet after the response. But I don't know, it, I think what's really interesting to me is how I seem to um, be so much more troubled by music in doing something very similar, a, a sort of mode of uh, representation and imitation. Uh, it, it, I think mainly it's because of the sort of mission statement of the films, um, you know, uh, music is meant to be some sort of celebration of autistic difference, but really it's a sort of celebration of, of carers, um, but still autism focused. Whereas uh, good time is very much focused on uh, exploitation and sort of the escalating um, farce of trying to sort of operate outside of the law. Um, and so, I don't know, I mean, I don't think there is 
uh, a solid ontological ground for like differentiating these two approaches, but somehow it gives me the creeps to a lesser degree, or at least the creeps that I get from good time is, is massively drowned out by the intensity and disturbing nature of the film, uh, relative to my sort of analysis of this representation. But I think you made a really good point that, um, you know, they've, they've hedged their bets by not really, uh, identifying anything specific about um, Nick's uh, Nick's character, um, yeah. So it's it's very ambiguous to me. I I can't uh, I can't really make my mind up about. You know, I, I think I I've, I've I've developed a line of logic based on the response to music, and I and it and it feels like um, maybe it doesn't extrapolate out as easily to this film, but I'm not sure why I feel that way. Um, I, w- I wonder if it's uh, because in Good Time, um, the, is his name Nick? The character, he, he's, he's not on screen anywhere near as much as music is. And also, um, like, I, don't, I don't feel like either character is very well developed. I feel like it's more a film about the people around these characters, but um, at least I feel like Good Time is trying to say something. <laughs> um, like it's trying, I feel like it's being critical of sort of the the carceral systems that, that exist around people, um, whether that be prison or institutionalization and, and um, music seems to exist in this complete neurotypical fantasy that um that everything's perfect and everyone looks out for each other um like all, all the all the neighbors in the film all take care of music and they, they watch her while she's on her walk each day um it just yeah it, it feels like Sia's fantasy about what what it means to be a good carer and also there's the whole problematic thing where we go inside music's head and there's a whole other world where everything's perfect. Yeah, it, if, yeah, I definitely feel like Good Time is trying to say something and critique these systems, whereas music just doesn't even know they exist pretty much. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me very much of your... Um video essay on the neurotypical gaze, John James, the idea of sort of controlling the way that autistic people, not only controlling their behavior through sort of institutionalized um, systems that favor neurotypicality, but also filmmakers co-opting the way that neurotypical, uh, neurodiverse people are looking at the world. Um, I thought that's a really insightful point that you made in your work. but yeah, it's another example of that, that sort of evocation of subjective difference um, by someone who has no access to what that difference must phenomenologically be. Oh, uh, thanks. Yeah, I think, yeah, as well, maybe good time is sort of protected in a way because it doesn't try to do that. It doesn't try to look inside Nick's head. Um whereas music does. And um, I mean, Sia said that she made this film by watching 
videos of meltdowns and nonverbal people on YouTube. So, uh, yeah, I don't feel like it. it's very compassionate at all, or even trying to understand. And it's worth thinking about who was filming those meltdowns and what motivation they had to put them on the internet. You know, I mean, there's no secret that uh, Sia was aligned very closely with Autism Speaks, the sort of advocacy group for autistic carers as opposed to autistic people. Um, another thing I think about, oh, sorry, Jenna. Um, another thing uh, is a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people were criticizing music before it came out. Um, and then Sia was sort of going off of the internet saying, oh, well, why didn't you watch my film before you judge it? And the film came out and people were like, oh, it's even worse than we thought it was going to be. Um, there's a very specific scene where um, music is having a meltdown and um, one of the characters kind of like jumps on top of her and like restrains her, which is a very dangerous thing to do. There's autistic people who've been killed um, because of that and there's a very recent case and I, I can't remember the, the boy's name but um, he was killed by police by being restrained um, uh, and and there's a I think from that scene they're, they're saying you know I'm, I'm crushing her with love which stood out to me because you know there's, no, there's nothing loving about that you're, you're restraining a person and if you Comparing that with good time, um, you, it's obvious that there's no kind of uh, that there is some kind of familial love in in Connie trying to get Nick out of jail, but there's no love in the way that he exploits him and manipulates him. And the Safety brothers make that very clear. Whereas Sia makes absolutely no <laughs> effort to show um, how unethical that is because she just doesn't know. Like there's just complete lack of research, um, complete neglect of autistic voices who she's silenced on the internet. There was one instance where um, one autistic person responded to one of her tweets saying, you know, one of us could have acted at short notice, you know, if you needed someone autistic to play the role. And she just said, well, maybe you're a bad actor. So there's a very clear kind of lack of care from her side. And... I think even if the Safdie brothers didn't cast someone um, who was autistic or, um, you know, I feel like they were, they were actually, like you said, John James, they were actually, they were actually trying to do something. They were trying to say something. I think with Sia has this kind of vision of um, what she like a quite liberal, you know, you know, everyone loves each other and supports each other idea and that, autistic people are the key to having you know a magical world where everyone loves each other because they have you know a special mindset but that's also a very damaging trope that we see quite a lot you know the the magical autistic person who has you know a really vivid imagination with colors um when, when we're actually just people <laughs> um yeah it's just it's such a a blatant lack of any kind of care or attention to detail, which is is kind of one of the most disappointing things of all, because you'd think someone who is so famous and has so much influence and a film that is being released quite widely and is being nominated for awards, you know, people are going to see it and kind of take it as an example of 
um, representation, which is really sad to me, actually. I mean, I I found uh, I found music, the, the extracts that that we watch, um, just it seems astonishingly misplaced to think that that would ever be appropriate for a celebrity musician to be able to make a film like that. That it seems to me to come from some sort of 18th century good works type position where the benevolent um insightful person in power can 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 use um autism someone with autism to to say something about themselves um i mean i think that everything that you've said so far i i agree with about that that film um but i think there's i think there's something about about the other film that's getting disguised here, that sort of in, in contrast to music, it seems to be genuinely motivated. And I guess I didn't have that feeling about it. I intensely disliked the film. <laughs> um, and I found that the main character, Robert Pattinson's character uh, of Connie, and I, I just found him... Um, well, I th- I thought that his style of masculinity uh, is is put at the centre of the film. It appears to be a critique of white able-bodied masculinity. I think someone's already said that, and I, and I think we see that. You know, he uses people. Everyone else kind of you know gets you know messed up if they come into contact with him. But on the other hand, it's a, he's the character who also carries the action of the film. He's exciting, he makes decisions, he has ideas, he's in control. And in response to that, his you know his brother is this sort of other style of masculinity that is just a, a sort of onlooker who is incapable of making those decisions. He He's incapable of manipulation or exploitation. And it seemed very sort of stark, that contrast to me. And it didn't seem very clear uh, kind of where, where the viewer is invited to be in that along that spectrum. It seemed to me a film very much about masculinity, even if it didn't think it was. And the whole genre felt a bit like that too. Um, so yeah, those 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 were my thoughts about it. It even the way in which the character of Nick is filmed, when in the, the very first scene where the camera is very close up on him and the film returns to this, this series of close-ups with the brothers' faces, um, I thought, wow, that's that's so unusual that we would see an actor's nose and and an open pause in that first scene. And I thought that that was quite horrifying. You know, usually someone would have makeups, makeup, that kind of skin, um, you know, blemish in Hollywood or filmic terms is covered over. And I thought we were meant to have, I thought that invited the spectator to feel this kind of slight revulsion for that character right from the get-go. Um, and I thought that, that that sort of bodily representation uh, of neurodiversity was smuggled in there several times in the film, the kind of slack jaw look, you know, that that sense of like, ooh, um, I, 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 you know, I found that really problematic. I don't know if anyone else noticed, noticed those sorts of ways in which the character was filmed. 
Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think that the, the well, this is a film that I I think I enjoyed it a lot more than you did, Janet. As this is I've seen it now a couple of times. Good time, and I, I quite enjoy the um, the the this the sort of pace of it and the plotting of it and the chaos of it and also the kind of nihilism of it. I mean, it's not a film that that ends particularly happily. It doesn't things don't work out really for Connie at all. Um, and I quite enjoyed all of that in the same way that I, I rather I quite enjoyed uh, Uncut Gems as well. But no, I think you're absolutely right about the um, the portrayal of um, Nick as yeah this kind of quite quite he's quite a big guy. He's quite a sort of shambling and he's slack jawed and he's sort of got a low monotone voice and he's he's almost always kind of seems to be sort of slightly frowning and and has that kind of far away look in his eyes. And I think that's, um, although I have read an interview actually with the direct, with Benny Safdie saying how he sort of developed this character over a few years and he's learned how to speak with a kind of, um, he sort of flattens his tongue. Because the other thing about this character is also that they're, they're deaf or hard of hearing because they're wearing a hearing aid. And he's got this kind of, um, this technique that he's developed. But you're right, I, I, I sort of feel that, that was based on quite a lot of perverse stereotypes about um people with learning difficulties and learning um uh you know who are sort of as they might call it developmentally disabled although i'm not sure i like that phrase necessarily um and i i also i i struggle a little bit with the ending as well so that the, the two the, the film is bookended by two scenes with um that focus on Nick. Uh, so the opening scene, as we discussed, is with a, 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 a sort of therapist kind of character who is uh, taking him through a kind of test, is uh, asking him uh, some questions. He's asking him about uh, sort of common uh, sayings and, and, and metaphors, like he uses the, um, uh, what should he say? I can't remember what he says now. Um, but it's like common, common phrases and common metaphors. And is asking, sorry, that's the one. Yeah, don't cut your chickens before they hatch. And asking if this, uh, if um, Nick understands them, and he's just basically saying chickens hatching, um, and clearly doesn't really understand what what's going on. Um, and then at the end, there's a scene where um, uh, Nick has ended up in a uh, some kind of care institution, and he's with some other. Um, uh, people with learning difficulties who interestingly were real actors with learning difficulties. They did get, you get some real um, actors in to play those roles. And he's doing this kind of, again, a very simple and very quite patronizing uh, exercise where um, the leader of the group is telling them to cross the room um, whenever they've uh, whenever sort of they can answer yes to a particular question that she's asking, like, have you ever been in love or have you ever lied? And these people are sort of crossing backward and forward. And the camera stays mostly on um, Benny that whole time as he sort of plods to one side of the room and back again. And I was, I was, a, I, I don't I'm slightly troubled by this ending. I'm not quite sure what it is that it's supposed to be saying. On the one hand, the, there's a, there's a, it feels quite realistic and it feels quite like he's in a, he's in almost quite a, a nice place. I mean, it doesn't look like he's necessarily under any particular stress or threat in here. Everyone's being very nice to him. He is socializing to a certain extent with these other, um, with these other 
characters, these are the people with the learning difficulties. He's cared for. He's, he, you know, quite a lot of the time during the film, he's he's got a lot of injuries because he gets beaten up a few times and he's sort of got cuts and bruises all over his face a lot of the time. Um, but here he's he seems kind of happy and content. But we're never quite sure if he's if he's actually happy and settled here. So I wasn't quite sure what the Safety brothers were trying to say here, whether they were saying it's okay, he's now in a safe place, or isn't this sad that people like this end up in this kind of a situation and can't live out their lives necessarily? And then also, what's the reflection also that they're trying to put upon the rest of the film? Are they saying that these people in this institution are in some way in a kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of way reflection on the on the madnesses of society outside and uh, the different situations that people get themselves into, particularly the situation that Robert Patterson's character spirals down in, into. Um, so I wasn't really sure how to feel at the end of the film and whether they were trying to say, whether it was quite a nihilistic and hopeless ending in some way um, and what exactly they were trying to say about the about the sort of places, modern sort of institutions that people with learning difficulties end up in. I don't know what were I don't know what was people's reactions to that, Alex. I mean, I had a very specific reading of what happened at the end, which was I certainly didn't assume that um, Nick was uh, institutionalized in the sense that he was now living in a residential community. It seemed to be the same um, building where he'd go to visit the uh, psychologist to discuss various things. And this was uh, framed as a class that uh, the psychologist thought he'd enjoy. And um, so it seemed like it was a sort of opt-in or recommendation type uh, sort of uh, event. And then um, the functioning of the exercise that they conducted as a group was to um, physically demonstrate through crossing the room when they have experienced shared uh, phenomena. So um, people who like candy, you can cross the cross the room and and then the sort of questioning escalates to more problematic and emotionally focused experiences, such as have anyone ever blamed you for something that wasn't your fault? Um, and has anyone ever lied to you? And it seems like this scene was there to introduce the seeds of Nick starting to recognize that Connie was um, potentially a problematic figure in his life because we start to see him moving across the room when addressing instances that we're aware of earlier in the film where Connie has mistreated him. So to me, it seems like a sort of optimistic turn at the end of the film where um, uh, Nick is developing some intellectual independence away from Connie's sort of manipulative control. Um what the film uh, good time made me think about uh the phenomenon where even today where a, a child or a young person would would obviously need some sort of support or help but the parents or caregivers don't don't want to acknowledge that and don't want don't want to put them through an assessment to to Get a label they don't want their child to be labeled even though that would give them the support they need because um right at the beginning there's there's some sort of assessment 
process from the the psychologist towards Nick and us thinking about the autism assessment process and how you have to have your experiences corroborated by a family member that knew you in childhood and Connie kind of refuses to do that he refuses to corroborate that um Nick does have these issues and then when he's breaking breaking him out of the psychologist appointment he looks at another disabled person and he kind of says he, he compares them he says that's not you um and then the next scene he puts a mask on him to rob a bank and I wonder if he's like kind of if the film's trying to say something about denying who you are um uh, because he also breaks uh, Connie also breaks Nick out of hospital so there's these points at which he could get he could get care and support and Connie says no he doesn't need that um sort of talks over him um and his needs but then it's kind of like quite a bleak reading of that because I feel like um the film's trying to say that everyone ends up in the right place so there's no self-determination um the, the the guy that just got out of prison that um that Connie spends a lot of time with he says when they dropped him off they dropped him off outside a liquor store which I could quite well imagine with the the huge corporate prison industrial complex in America that that would happen and that they would you know that they would seek to have you back in prison rather than rehabilitate you so it's kind of like I'm like they're stuck in this this almost like a Greek tragedy like their their fate is already written they'll end up in these places and that, that's what's meant to happen so it is kind of bleak but also I guess Nick's needs are being addressed at the end I don't it's kind of confusing I think it's interesting what you're saying there, John James, about what, what might appear to be movement isn't movement. That they're just it's quite circular actually for the character um Ray that you were talking about. He's just actually he's his his life is quite static. There's um in in that criminal loop. And maybe the same is true for Connie too. Um I mean I I felt as though I think it's interesting what what you're saying about what you were saying, Alex, about that scene at the end where Nick might be having some realization of his brother's um, motivation, manipulation of him um, to pursue his own goals. I I found those scenes with the psychologist quite quite. Um, uh, quite pessimistic, if you like, and quite critical of the institution of psychology, psychiatry, care. I felt as though the that character who was doing the test was framed as someone who was speaking in quite a simple way. These tests weren't something that the character could engage with. And so where the film begins and ends with that, it feels as though he's come back to the same place. Um, he has 
no agency he's he hasn't moved anywhere and it seems as though he's incapable of moving anywhere and if, if we think about mobility as a question that the film is asking of all the characters if you like you know to, to what extent can any of them move and make changes and make decisions I would still say I found Nick to have the least agency um, and that last scene, like literally it's about the movement across the room. You know, this is all these people can do. This is all that's expected of them. And wouldn't you rather, you know, live a life with Connie than, than end up somewhere like this? That That's how I experienced the film, the film and that final scene. So I, I think it quite privileges um, Connie, Connie's life, the, the, the life of the um, down at heel, white, masculine, neurotypical guy who still is more exciting and has more opportunities than anyone else it seems to me the kind of living by your wits but I wonder how other people experience the psychologists and that those scenes with him um yeah I I agree um yeah with everything everyone just said um uh like you say I, I think the ending whilst it does you know it highlights um Nick kind of getting uh, proper care and having his condition sort of realized I'm not sure if it's fully validated because um when he's kind of talking again when he's talking to the therapist it is kind of like a discord because I think I don't it doesn't seem like Nick is being entirely listened to about his trauma because he you know he makes these associations with like violence and he starts talking about the story with uh the frying pan and his grandma um and uh, it's not, uh, I, the, the therapist is almost kind of interrogating him about it rather than kind of being compassionate um, and, you know, talking about his trauma in that way. And, and yeah, by the end of the film, I read it as kind of, uh, Nick is in a, a place where he's no longer being exploited by Connie and he's being realised, but he's not happy because, I mean, he's had like a lifetime of being um, abused and exploited. Um, and it's that kind of rehabilitation, I think, that, that's quite, it's quite difficult to, um, it, it's difficult to assess the kind of meaning of the ending, but I think the tone of it is, uh, is quite sad. And I don't know, I just, I do feel like Nick is still kind of misunderstood because I think he's, also used to kind of trying to mask and adapt to the life that Connie has. Um, whereas a lot of other people there maybe have been, you know, had the kind of good care and had been uh, looked after their whole lives and he hasn't. So I think he needs a kind of more um, specialised care that involves looking at his trauma as well. And with the kind of, I, I'd say maybe if, if it's more of an underfunded, um, place they might not be able to provide that for him and he might never get the the care that he needs and I guess that also goes back to the point of not um, specifying what his condition is so it's difficult to know what it is that will help him and support um, but I don't know the ending always kind of strikes me because the film is very is very fast-paced and very stressful and it kind of ends in this really sad place that might not even necessarily be sad but I do feel sorry for him because even when he's moving across the room it's like he's um he doesn't feel quite where he's supposed to be because 
he's been made to think by Connie that that's not what he needs, I guess. Um, but yeah, I am. Um, and also another thing I wanted to mention about like the close-ups, um, which also kind of contributes to that anxiety, I think, because my friend did like a, a research project on the Safety Brothers and I think they used a very like particular lens so it's like a very close lens, something not, something like smaller than like sixteen millimeter, um, and it um, they had to do very fast shots with it so that it didn't shake everywhere. Um, but they, I, I guess, I think they did that because they wanted to focus on on Nick and those those kind of anxiety inducing close ups, which did transfer to me because I was very. Uh, made me very anxious um but yeah that's my take on the ending I'm still kind of unsure about it but it just it made me feel quite sad and troubled and I think the thing that you mentioned John James about the kind of people ending up sort of where they belong in an institutional sense is really interesting especially with um I think his name is um Roy or something like that um the ex-convict um, and also fights back on Connie as well. Like obviously he ends up back in prison, but then again, you know, the there's also kind of a commentary there on on race because when uh, Connie and the other guy do the thing at the, the theme park, it's um, the the young black girl is the one who's arrested just for standing outside, and they get away with it. Um, and he's dressed up as the god; they don't even question him. And so even so, they will still get away with things, whereas people who, you know, don't have that privilege are taken into that system anyway. So it's quite sad it's reflecting on it. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of that. I think that there's a, a sense that there is a, a reflection here on where <clears throat> certain people get trapped within certain roles within within contemporary american society i suppose and 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 nick is used as perhaps the sort of the the pinnacle example of that and while they're never really quite direct about about this but it does sort of feel as if they're saying um you know here here are a bunch of people who perhaps have fallen through the cracks a little bit and um we can never really quite find the right quite right the right places for them to be or um so you're right that i think that um nick never seems to get any kind of happiness he never seems to be in any situation where he is fully happy or comfortable even when he's doing the bank robbing he's not comfortable and even after the you know initially the the robbing of the banks seems to have gone quite well they've they've got out with the money they've gone around the corner they're taking their masks off they're taking their costumes off and they're dumping them and at that point connie does turn to his brother and say you know you were amazing you were brilliant you you know i could never have done that without you standing next to me and maybe that's the the point and the only point in the film where there's perhaps a glimmer of of nick's happiness albeit wrapped around the fact that he's just committed a crime and he's on the run from the police and um and it's all very you know, very difficult. And then a little later you get the phone call where he's, um, he's been arrested and he's calling his gran, I think his, uh, his grandmother. And yeah, saying that she doesn't love him. Only Connie loves him. So it's clear that he is, um, 
confused about his place in society. It's it's clear, I think, that the film is trying to say there doesn't seem to be a a good and comfortable place for him. And I think one of the most remarkable things about the opening scene where he's being uh, interviewed by that psychiatrist um, is that he starts crying halfway through and clearly he's upset and his tear is rolling down his cheek. And... um, and the psychiatrist doesn't even react to this. I, I found that so sort of surprising when I was watching this this time round. That the psychiatrist is asking these questions. It seems to be fairly, um, yeah, a fairly warm person. He, he sort of comes across as a kind of genuine uh, person in some respects, um, but um, who's just kind of believes in these questions that he's asking but is going through the 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 motions of this test uh, of what's written down um i don't feel like he's giving much time for um benny to to make his responses or to think properly about what he's what he wants to say but it's it, yeah he you know he seems like a, he seems like a reasonable guy from what we can see of him and yet benny starts crying and and there is no kind of um you know okay let's stop this or shall we move on or shall we um uh, are you okay kind of thing and it's only when connie then bursts in and sees that benny is crying that connie starts to have a go at the at the psychiatrist saying you know where do you get off from making this person cry and actually that's that's a fair comment in some respects you know it's that there's a sort of fair uh I could sort of, I could sort of go along with Connie just briefly at that moment and say, well, yeah, you know, this, this, you know, Benny's clearly upset and uncomfortable here, and and there is no care being offered to him really, um, and and that was troubling. And and then at the end, when you get, we get the last scene again at the ending, there's a bit more warmth in the room at that time. Um, uh, but yeah, I do, I do feel like it's played for for sadness really and it's worth noting that there is a a piece of music playing over that time and as well as this is when the credits start to roll as well and we stay on on benny while the credits are rolling um and there's a as a piece of music piece of original music that was written for the for the film uh written by one or tricks point never the the person who did the soundtrack but then um sung by there's some lyrics on it on the track sung by iggy pop and the track is called The Pure and the Damned. And I've just got it up on my screen here to have a look at the lyrics because I was trying to listen to the lyrics at the time and think, well, what, how do these relate? So it's called The Pure and the Damned. And the, and the main one of the main refrains that comes through persistently all the way through is um, uh, a couple of lines that say, the pure always act from love, the damned always act from love. Um, and I was wondering about this, this song as, you know, clearly it's it's been written specifically for the film and whether the there is a, a an effort here to place purity upon perhaps upon benny and the damned upon um upon, oh no sorry purity on nick and the damned upon connie potentially or the other way around maybe um and this idea of them acting from from love my thoughts on that were that like i did sort of feel like Connie's energies towards because he spends the entire film trying to do anything he possibly can to raise the money to pay post post the bail to get Benny out of prison and I think that that went not Benny Benny's the name of the actor to get Nick out of prison I think that that I sort of felt that that went further than um than Nick simply wanting 
no, sorry, I keep getting these these names wrong, um, than Connie simply wanting Nick as his kind of bank robbing accomplice. I do feel as if he was doing this through um, through a sort of familial love to a certain extent, being a brother, um, being a, a good sibling and trying to, in his own warped way, look after or care for um, for Nick. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's worth also sort of also noting that this is a film made by a pair of brothers. So there is clearly a, a, a theme of siblinghood, of brotherly love, I guess, between these two people. And it kind of resonated, resonated a little bit with me as somebody who is a brother to an autistic person. Um, and I wondered if this song at the end this which is a very sad song is sung very slowly and sadly by uh by Iggy Pop in that very deep voice that he has I wonder if that was trying to suggest that 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 the that a lot of what happened in the film was done through a sense of love even if that was a really warped version of it uh warped perhaps by the social situation that these people have found themselves in um but nevertheless, it was interesting. And I, yeah, I, I'm like you, George. I don't think I fully decided upon how I feel about that ending. I, it was my understanding that the reason they robbed the bank in the first place is to raise cash to leave the city and have a bit of land and basically be on the lamb. And, and uh, part of that motivation is to escape their grandmother and to escape the social services and to sort of start afresh. So this sort of wild plan to escape the constraints that the sort of institutional constraints they're currently under was the sort of trigger point that this chaos sort of escalates from. And I think just going back to, so I don't, I don't know how that changes the ethics of the film. You know, if it wasn't just a sort of impulsive act, well, it was very impulsive, but it wasn't just a selfish act to um, rob a bank as if there was something, uh, uh, arbitrary and meaningless about the whole thing it was uh you know an escape plan um that resulted in new escape plans that resulted in new chaos and so i mean i, I think it's interesting to think about um connie as an ethical figure you know uh, in some ways he aligns quite closely with like an iron randian sort of um uh heroes who who has a, a goal and and will do anything to reach that goal and, and doesn't let anybody else's values sort of get in the way of stopping him and it doesn't work obviously but um it's still you know it, he certainly has an ethic and his ethic is orientated around getting his brother out of these circumstances and getting himself out too but along the way he nothing will stop him and it doesn't matter who he crosses or who he who he manipulates who he uses um, so it's sort of, you know, ruthlessly selfish. Um, going back, David, to what you were discussing with, with the psychiatrist, this inter this interaction where um, the psychiatrist leads him down a path of conversation that leads to tears. I mean, to me, I think it speaks very loudly about the power of psychiatrists and the way in which they sort of uh, co-opt casual interactions when actually they're conducting serious studies and circumstances in which you live and they have the power to remove you from your household and um, put you in an institution so i mean i think it was that discomfort that you know it felt very much like nick had been briefed 
to be careful around psychologists and never to trust them and to be careful about how much information they ever have access to. And it seemed like he was getting upset because he was aware he was showing his cards a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, so it, it felt very much about the sort of power of psychiatry uh, to me, that that sort of interchange. Um, I, I, we've talked about these different um, systems that, that the people, characters in the film are trapped in. So there's, there's sort of the carceral system and there's legal systems and psychiatry and social services. But I, I wonder if um, Connie is kind of trapped in a system himself of this um, masculinity that Janet brought up. Like he feels like he has to solve all the problems. He has to be the strong, the strong manly figure that 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 break Connie out of these systems. Um, so, and and even the fantasy of sort of starting this farm and escaping the systems, it's kind of in itself. He's he's trapped trapped in his own mindset. And so he's constantly fighting to get out of that, but he doesn't realize that he could he could do it a different way. Um, yeah, I uh, the song at the end is I really like it. I, I like I knew about it before I even watched the film. Like it was already something I listened to. Um, but on the theme of like um, the characters being trapped in various kind of systems and institutions, like there's a a thing in the song where it's like. Um, uh, it's about kind of dreaming and like, I'm not going to get there, but it's a nice dream. And for a lot of the film, I think is, I think Connie is quite idealistic in the way that he envisions freedom, um, you know, and, and promising things. I think he promises a lot to his brother that he can't necessarily deliver because of these systems and because of the, the masculinity that he's trapped in, because the way that he keeps exploiting people is actually pulling him back is actually getting him into more trouble for a lot of the film I was watching it with my friends last night and then one of them was just like this film is just Robert Pattinson being stupid <laughs> and I was like that makes a lot of sense because he's he's doing a lot of things that in that moment he thinks are right um, because of stuff he can use but it's actually causing more trouble for himself and his brother um, but again it's it's a it's a sort of trap in a way um in, in the same sense where you could think of uh, Nick kind of uh, being, I guess, trapped in the sort of mindset that Connie's abuse has put him in and also uh, perhaps in like a state of care that doesn't necessarily help him. I mean, I don't know if how to read that, but I think I, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, a lot of it, I guess, um, just makes me think about it's very bleak and it makes me think about um the very how the various like intersectional institutions and ideas that were kind of forced into by you know society uh capitalism things like that uh and and it, it kind of just is it doesn't really provide a solution it's more of a reflection on what people dream of and um, it's quite hopeless in the end. I'm not sure. <laughs> can, can I just ask people what they thought about about masking? And it's it's something that we've talked about before. 
and it seems to operate here um, in terms of race, literally, when they put on those masks. Um, but also, I guess it's there in this in this acting and this performance of uh, a neurodiverse character. Um, are, are we are we invited to think of this as a as someone who's acting, or are, are are we kind of invited to to take it literally as um, you know that this is a kind of authentic representation? I mean, I I was I was sort of struggling in myself to to think about this in relation to someone like Claire Dane, who when she performed Temple Grandin, and I was thinking that I much preferred that that portrayal of, of Temple Grandin than, than I did of, of the character here. And I think it was partly because, because Claire, we know Claire Dane did lots of research. We know she worked with Temple Grandin. We know there was a lot of backstory around that, but also that she was the, the center of the film. You know, the film is about her and the character has agency and it's about her, her journey arc. Whereas this, seems to me to just just use this character as you know yet again another plot point it makes the kind of the straight normative white guy at the center of it kind of look quite good and caring if we if we read it in that way but he certainly gets to have to to, to do all the doing if you like you know he's he's the, he's the center of our attention once again and i suppose i thought that even around the sort of the, the critique of race that we do see it here we do see my god he's so ruthless he'll even you know use his whiteness um to drop black people into all kinds of terrible circumstances um including as you were saying um i think georgia that about the young girl who's asked you know the young black girl who just gets taken away by the police um, partly because she is black and she's hanging around outside, you know, she's she's removed. Um, all black characters immediately, you know, treated with suspicion or hostility. So I think it it, it sort of shows us these things that we're meant to meant to feel like yes, that's a critique of systems. But on the other hand, I suppose I just like keep coming back to this point that it somehow leaves leaves all of the attention. And the, the the kind of the white male character, the, the neurotypical character at the center of, of the film. And that just seems to me to be really quite problematic. Yeah, definitely. I think you're absolutely right. And it's interesting to 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 mention again that you know that the the, the, the when they're asked, when the Sati brothers were asked about um the casting effectively of of a of a non-disabled actor in this disabled role um they you know made the fairly d decent <clears throat> observation that their film would that, that the character of the of nick has a gets a sort of ferried around a lot and sort of used quite a lot um as a, as a plot point that would ne not necessarily be cor ethically correct for a person with learning difficulties to be expected to perform and act on a film, and I think there's a, definitely a you know a clear ethical question there. But then the the subsequent question is then, well, why has this why has this plot been written in such a way that the um, the learning disabled character is just used as um, what they, what we term in, in in disability studies as narrative prosthesis, where they're just they're they're not the agent of the film, they're not the central focus of the film. They're just there as 
either an obstruction, a problem to cause conflict or as something to be saved or to be rescued and, and never really has their own, um, yeah, as their own sort of central agency. So perhaps that's where the problem is. It's this uh, tendency to, um, to reach for narratives that are about using that yeah that are about using autistic and uh neurodivergent uh characters as prosthetics as as plot props for the benefit or for the development i suppose of the of the neurotypical characters which i guess although i haven't seen the whole thing is is effectively what happens in music as well because although the film is called music and is ostensibly about music um it's really i guess i mean john james can say more to, towards this is about um the other characters and about how they deal with uh this of with music and what they learn from being with music so i uh, yeah i think you're right and you, and in terms of the um uh, the the point about the uh, masking it's interesting because it seems like masking and disguise is a, is a is a theme throughout good time um connie does a lot of um masking uh, he does a lot of um play acting he he spends a lot of time he he's a little bit of a con figure really he's a bit of a con man he kind of very quickly turns himself into an actor when he needs to be um he play acts for the the police guard that's sitting outside the room in the hospital he he play acts to a certain extent when he's first meets the young black girl in her home um and to a certain extent he's always play acting with with um nick as well he's not quite fully perhaps telling him the, the, the whole truth about everything that's happening um so in a way it's curious that we never really see the true uh connie in some respects although we can probably glimpse bits and pieces of him um yeah i don't really have a, a clear and a clever point to say there but it's interesting to note that the clearly the Safety brothers have seen disguise and and masking as a as a theme all the way through it and in a sense Nick is the most unmasked the most almost auth- most authentic character in some ways the one that you sort of see with a certain amount of as Iggy Pop puts it in the song with a certain amount of purity compared to to a lot of the other characters um but Yes, I mean, as as you said, Georgia, you know, is that has a an image been constructed of, or has he sort of been influenced heavily by Connie in, into certain ways of thinking, and therefore has sort of masked himself, I guess, in a way. Um, hmm, but yeah, it's definitely definitely interesting. I mean, um, sort of Nick being a pure sort of innocent in this story is problematic and sort of uh, prosthetic in its own sense you know like um he doesn't have if he's not a for i mean what i keep thinking about is like oh no wait we've got to think about this film as as a fantasy of these two directors um and so these inventions that they're creating a, a sort of stemming from their own imaginations or the the author as well who who worked with josh safty um and so you know everybody in the story is is a prop or a device or a um a sort of construction that helps them explore their darkest fantasies they seem like dark fantasies of of what really you can be capable of as an agent if you sort of abandon all morality or all normative morality 
um, in sort of service of a of a sort of ideal. But um, yeah, so I think it's it's we've got to imagine um, Nick as this sort of mm, this sort of uh, prop like other invented by I think neurotypical directors for the purpose of um, telling a story about uh, someone's descent into chaos. I'm just conscious that we're running maybe a little short of time, but um, I don't know if we did anybody have any, any last few thoughts. I mean, I, di I did want to pose something to, I didn't want to put John James on the spot, but I do want to pose a little question to him as having seen the whole of music. Is there anything redeemable about the film at all, John James? <laughs> is there anything that you were at any point just went, oh, actually that was all right? Um, not, not really, to be honest. If, if, you, if you can look past um, all the issues with the representation and, and, and the, you know, the dangerous methods of restraint displayed, it's actually a pretty boring film. It's just a sequence of, of music, see a music video is held together by this quite loose romance between um, music's older sister and music's neighbor um, who sort of becomes her carer. Um, and it, it, in a way, music's in, inside music's head, all we're shown is that all she wants is for the for these two characters to be together. That sort of the climax of the film is they they get together, and music is so happy. That's that's you know that paradise that her sister and and this guy are together, and that they perform a song that that music's mother wrote before she died and music ends up singing it she actually can actually sing now which which is kind of weird like is, is she is she now verbal like because her sister is in a relationship it's really really weird um i do think um the similarity between good time and music is this idea of like being a savior to disabled people i mean obviously Pony wants to save his brother. Um, Sia kind of wants to to save all all autistic people and free them. Um, she actually writes herself into the film. There's a bit where music music sister Zoo is selling her drugs, and and she's there as Sia getting her makeup done, and she comes up with this weird idea that she's going to buy as many pain medications as possible and sell them in Haiti, I think, because they can't get access to um, proper medical care. And she calls herself Pop Stars Without Borders, which is just really, really um, problematic and cringe. And I think it like it, it kind of, you know, is emblematic of her whole view towards being a savior. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I think you've just nailed it for me, John James. It's what's unpalatable about both these films, the saviour complex. Okay, well, I think that probably wraps things up then for this episode. Thank you very much uh, to all of you, to uh, Alex, John James, Georgia and Janet uh, for your thoughts and your insights on these both of these films. Interesting ones, these actually, because uh, you know generally we tend to fil pick films that we 
pretty much love and adore and and have lots and lots of really positive things to say about it. So it's been good to to, to pick two films that have been one that is extremely problematic and one that is um, a, a, a bit more complex, perhaps. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much for your thoughts and your insights. Thanks to the listeners for listening, um, and we'll be we'll be back soon with uh, some more analysis. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>